Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode I'm joined by another musical legend, this time Danny Thompson, a man who, over the past 55 years, has been a band leader, sideman, group member and composer. Best known as a double bassist, he's worked with the very best, including John Martin, Richard Thompson and Nick Drake. And in recent years, he's also played with our podcast subject, Paul Weller. There are so many stories to dive into on this one. A founding member of influential folk jazz group Pentangle from 1967 to 73, along with its subsequent reunions and reversionings. He's also had a critically acclaimed successful solo career, winning two Lifetime Achievement Awards at the BBC Radio 2 Folk Awards. He's played on over 500 albums, including Paul Weller's Studio 150 and True Meanings. Been part of a Paul Weller supergroup with Robert Wyatt and has a very special career goal that links in with Mr. Weller that you'll hear about as well. Find out more details in the show notes for this podcast. I've even created a Danny Thompson playlist for you to check out as well. All the details, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. So let's get into it. Danny Thompson, thanks for joining me. Hello, watcher. I'm surprised that you asked me. It's a pleasure, though. I've never done a podcast before, so a bit nervous. You know, this is a proper exclusive, folks. I love it. A podcast exclusive. Now, Danny, you, like me, are a Dan. Are you really a Daniel, or is it Danny is the, the no, name of the I only get called Daniel <laughs> if it's the police or I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's the same here. That's the same here. <laughs> Other than it's Danny. Now, Danny, I'm so excited about talking with you because, I mean, not only are you a legend yourself, but you've worked with so many proper 
proper greats across so many genres of music as well. So we're talking about people, and we'll dig into this conversation about people like the brilliant late great John Martin, people like Richard Thompson, people like Nick Drake, for goodness sake, and then people like Humphrey Littleton and Tubby Hayes and Ross Stewart <laughs> and Kate Bush, and of course, Mr. Paul Weller. You have been digging then. Oh, it's unbelievable the amount of things I've found, because this is all a bit of a mistake, really, because weren't you meant to be a Chelsea footballer? I was, I was a junior, and my uh, loyalty to Chelsea is is well known. In fact, the left winger in the 50s was, was a man called Billy Gray, and he was a great footballer, but he was also my boxing coach. And we're talking of days when footballers actually got off the bus with a fag in their mouth <laughs> and came into the ground, you know. So I got sort of introduced to the juniors and used to do the odd ball boy bit at Chelsea. And I've often said to, you know, to my wife, I said, it's ridiculous when I watch a game. Why is it important? You know, it's not just for me, but everyone, it's so important that their team, it doesn't matter if they lose. And I remember walking Sunset Strip in America, they're weeks behind on their newspapers, British newspapers, and I hadn't seen a paper for ages. And I saw one of these newsstands and I picked up a paper which was like weeks old and I looked straight at the back and it said, you know, Chelsea nil. Sheffield United and I shouted all on my own and I sometimes (laughs) see this as a video of me in the street in Sunset Strip going what? How can you lose at home to Sheffield? And I'm thinking does it matter? Of course it matters. Well, it's weird though, isn't it? Because that thing, as I've got older, you come to realise there's always another game. So, you know, as long as whatever happens, there's always going to be another game of football and we're going to win, lose or draw and that's it forevermore, right? Well, what amazes me about the Chelsea thing is I come from the days of we'd be 3-0 up and we knew that we'd lose 4-3 or something. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. And... It amazes me now that they talk about European football and da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, hold on, this is Chelsea. He used to play five-a-side in the car park at Stanford Bridge, you know, and you could have a chat to some of the great players. And I spoke to Pat Nevin years ago. He was at a, a folk award ceremony. And I said, how many Chelsea footballers do you think no, what number bus stops outside the ground? <laughs> uh, and so that's should... how romantic I'm about Chelsea. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And apparently Mr. Weller is a Chelsea supporter as well. I don't know if you've talked about this, have you? Well, I didn't know that, but I've seen stuff in the studio and I thought, well, it's a bit indelicate to say, are oh, you, bl-? you know, I've never got into that. Okay, next time, next time. But we should say as well, obviously, the football passion from a young age. Whilst you're at school, you're learning all kinds of instruments as well. So the mu- there's parallels, I guess, with the football and the music. The music was a big passion point from early on then. It was, but it has nothing to do with school. Ah. Because I went to quite a good college. I went to the Salesian College Battersea, which was handy for Chelsea because you could just zoom over Battersea Bridge and I was there, you know. The music was a te- totally separate thing. It's a pretty miserable time for me, my whole early life, uh, which I won't go into. I'll wait for the book for that. And I've spoken to so many, obviously, on the road with with other musicians, a lot of musicians, actually, that had a tough time. And the only way they could overcome any kind of problem was to lock themselves in their bedroom and play. And I used to get in my room and I'd become (laughs) whoever it was, become Ray Brown or somebody, you know. And I'd be dreaming of being on a stage, never thinking that one day it would happen. And this is the other kind of thing is I find it 
quite amazing when young people come up to me and say, oh, you're blah, 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 you've worked with so-and-so, you did, you did. Um, can you teach me? I want to be a famous musician. And they say famous. Mm. And when I was a kid and made my first tea chest bass with a broom handle and doing, doing, you know, and a bit of piano one, <laughs> and we formed a little group, three of us, and a little skiffle group, and we ended up doing stuff in pubs. And people would say things like, what's the chords to, you know, pick a bale of cotton? <laughs> and we'd say, say, well, it's the call, you know, all serious, like talking really serious, like professional musicians. Well, it's the call at Paddy's house. It's the call that hurts. <laughs> and it's the funny call. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was how we started. But, but the serious point I'm making is, uh, when I eventually got a bass and all that stuff, I used to practice all day, all day, eight hours a day, ten hours a day, and think some people are working in factories that don't like it all. So I'm going to – and this without, without any idea of ever being able to walk in a studio or a stage. I mean, the only people that were on stages in my day were Doris Day, Frankie Lane. <laughs> and so got out of school early, college. I was supposed to stay there until I was 18. But they said, Daniel, you're no good to us and we're no good to you. So <laughs> I went, okay, bye-bye. It's a sod-off. <laughs> and I was, I was working in a strip club in Soho at 16, the Spider's Web in Mead Street, Soho. And years and years later, there was a documentary with me. We went back there and I saw, you know, we went down a railing and, and I was so embarrassed. But it was, a, it was a little trio. And, of course, we could play anything we liked. And the strippers used to give us tatty bits of music, you know. Sleepy time, girl. <laughs> but the good thing was at one o'clock, the strippers used to finish and all the Dirty Mac Brigade disappeared and the club was invaded by all these great musicians from all around you know tubby hayes they used to come in the club and there'd be great bass players that i admired like jeff klein and we'd have we jam until six or seven in the morning and i'd get like the tube back to battersea in the morning <laughs> so it was a great education so from doing the strip clubs and walking up the road and getting this American bloke to pull up. He said, do you want to do these American bases? And I'd, I'd never heard of it. So I used to go and do these American bases at 16, 17 years of age. And it was amazing walking into these American camps like Bryce Norton. You walked into like the equivalent of the English naffy, and it had coffee, chicken, milk. I'm talking of rationing days, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. I said, help yourself. And I bought myself a flying jacket and open to the world of American luxury. Brilliant. So <laughs> this, all I'm saying is this is all in education for me, working with these different bands and gradually making my way. And that was the trip. But 
I never started by saying I'm going to be a bass player. I'm going to be a, a famous bass player. I guess it's also that thing of like taking the time to learn your your craft in a way as well, yeah. isn't it? You're make you're able to make your mistakes as a young age, but you're putting in the time. You're putting in the hours to develop and get better. On the putting in the hours, there's a it's a wonderful thing. I say you said what I say to young kids when I've been, been teaching kids. So what does practice make? And they all go practice makes perfect. And I said, no, practice makes permanent because without a teacher, I'd be practicing this, this instrument and I'd be practicing it all wrong. And it became a permanent thing that when I eventually found out the real way, I had to sort of get rid of all these terrible bad habits and some have stayed with me, you know. So for any young people, it's really important to practice correctly with a teacher who knows i was happy in my bathroom you know <laughs> back in ella fitzgerald playing on the- <laughs> brilliant well you've done all right to be honest you've done all right having having learned the wrong stuff in the wrong way then you, you've done all right in your career let's be fair um, <laughs> i want i mean there's so many things to talk to you about because it has been a magnificent career but let's obviously this is the paul weller fan podcast so we should find out when it was you first became aware of paul's music and what that meant to you so um was it the jam the style council or solo no I've got to be honest, I was one of those characters. I'd have researched all this and stuff. No, jam, style, completely. I had nothing to do, no, no knowledge of it at all. I was in another world, you know. Yeah, of course. I'm sure Paul was at his time, you know. It's only later, and I've come to realise what a phenomenal artist he is, you know. And I really mean that. His energy, his output, and it's not cosmetic. It's not to be a hit. And it's not manipulated to reach a certain market. It's Paul Weller. He's honest. What I like about him is his his honesty to himself, to his music. I've got no prejudices at all about music or most stuff. No prejudice at all. Open-minded, listen to anything. You could play me early jam now and then I'd know what you're talking about. Mm. Maybe it's a stupid thing of me to say, no, I don't know the jam. I don't know the style. Because people go, What? We've just, lost, we've just lost, yeah, we've just lost half our listeners, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm being totally honest, but all I can say is that for the last years when I have heard Paul, it's remarkable what a bloke he is, mm. not just as a, a musician and a songwriter and a poet, but as a geezer. He's totally honest. What you see is what you get, and I can relate to that one million percent. And when it comes to music, he knows what he wants. And it's a responsibility for me if I'm asked to go and play something. And I obviously want to do a good job. And the important thing I've always said is to serve the song and not what you want to do, not be clever. You see YouTubes of people playing. In all my years, in 50 years of playing and doing recording with you name it, no one's ever asked me to go. <laughs> they just want to hear that sound and, you know, that approach. And with Paul, for example, he'll leave me to do something and then he'll he'll make a suggestion, not a comment or criticism. He'll make a suggestion. I'll go, yeah, that's how I've learned as well over the last 60 years. Yeah. Well, when I started, it was like, too many notes, too many notes, Danny. Oh, okay. <laughs> when I hear stuff from John Martin and Pentangle, 
I mean, I really did take liberties. I don't care because that was that was for myself, you know. And the important thing is that if I've been asked to play with, especially with Paul, he lets you be yourself. You're that screwdriver in his toolbox. And I don't have any problem with any of that at all. He is the boss. I've been in studios working with well-known singers and the session players, the session players, which are somewhat of a different kind from when I was in the studio, would be muttering behind the music stance about the singer, about what a pile of rubbish and how can you play this? And I'm thinking, well, what are you doing here then? Yeah. That person is the reason that they're there to play and they should be playing what he wants, whether he knows a crotchet from a hatchet or whatever. It doesn't matter. So thank God that attitude was removed from the studios and it was removed from the studios by younger musicians coming in with a different attitude. And I was in that kind of crossover period. I remember doing a a really big session with a really well-known classical guitar player. And Rick Wakeman came in. These studio musicians went, look at this state. Look at his hair. (laughs) He had the kind of pink velvet trousers on and the multicolored, you know. He was Mr. Yes, you know, whatever. you know. And he sat down with the harpsichord and the celeste and the keyboards of it and sight read. It was really difficult stuff, right? And he sight read all this amazing stuff, turned it to harpsichord, turned it to And the musician said, wow, what a phenomenal musician. I said, yeah, do you think if he cut his hair any shorter, he'd play any better, you know? But it was that kind of snobbish, clicky yeah. attitude, which is no longer, you can turn up 10 minutes late and work, you know, till two in the morning to get things right if you want. In those days, it was like three hours of music, Clock on and clock off. And when was it you first worked with Paul? So the first, the first reference I can find on record would have been Studio 150. So this would have been his Amsterdam Correct. projects, the cover versions album. And then you're there on a couple of tracks for the Tim Hardin song, Don't Make Promises, and a version of Sister Sledge, Thinking of You. So was that the first time where you connected as musicians and played together? Well, we connected before that because I'll say uh, with all humility that I was sitting at home and a phone rang and it was Paul. And he said, hello, Dad. It's Paul Weller here. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. Hello. And he said, um, I just want to say that I've listened to you playing on the Five Blind Boys of Alabama album. And I'm just phoning to say, I really love what you do. I said, oh, so that's a kind of geezer. Wow. That was not to ask me to go to do a job or anything. He just phoned and he was in Ireland at the time. And then it was months later that he called to say he'd like me to do some recording. And I went and did that 150 album. Yeah. What was it? It was the Tim Hardin song and... Yeah, Tim Hardin and Sister Sledge, thinking of you. Double bass. So did you get to go to Amsterdam or did you record your bits in the UK? No, I did it here. I'm not one of those people that play stuff that I've recorded on. So I think I heard that when we did it and I hadn't heard it since. In fact, a friend a few months ago, when I said I'd never heard it, he sent me a recording of it and I, and I really like it. Yeah. They weren't the songs you would have expected him to cover, although he had done quite a few Tim Hardin songs covered at that point. But I mean, thinking of you is really out there, you know, Paul Weller covering Sister Sledge, really? But it really works. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's totally without prejudice since I've got to know him. I mean, his knowledge of everything going around. And it's not only that, it's, it's the younger stuff. It's what's it's now and happening. And the fact that he's got such a fantastic band with that, you know, Steve Pilgrim and Ben Gordelia, 
Have you heard that album that Ben did with Steve? Steve Brooks did with Ben Cordelia. Did, have you heard that? It's called Tread Gently. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Can you see oh, that? Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Oh, so it's well known on your site then, is it? Yeah, Steve's been on the podcast telling me all about it. And um, yes, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? It's a lovely listen. No, it's a lovely listen. But it's great. And, and it's like the idea of, of just him with Ben was fantastic. And it shows you also the musicality of Ben, you know, a percussionist. If you said, oh, it's uh, just a, a drummer and a singer and a guitar, people go, eh? But it really, really works great. And when I heard it, I thought, oh, I wish I'd have been there. I wish I could have done a couple. <laughs> but then, of course, it wouldn't be the same. We should also talk about another Steve as well, actually. Um, Steve Pilgrim, part of Paul's band. I think he's been Paul's drummer now for, what, 12, 13 years, something like that. But also has got five albums of his own. He's an amazing singer-songwriter. And he works on Morning Skies, his fourth studio album, recording at Black Barn, and then a whole project called Magic Strings. So let's talk about that. How did you come to be working with Steve Pilgrim? And, and talk to us about Steve. The lovely, lovely Steve. Scout supporter. <laughs> I think it's because I got to know him through working on Paul stuff that we got chatting. He asked me if I if I would play on a couple of his of his songs. To which I say, of course, you know, I play. You know, that's it. That's what I do. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I did, you know, and yeah. So we did some live stuff together, which I love live. I did a live gig with Paul, with Robert Wyatt as well. I mean, I just love live playing. 2016, you're part of this super group with Robert Wyatt. It's a concert for Jeremy Corbyn. Steve Pilgrim, Ben Gordelia are there as well, live in Brighton. How did that come about? Well, that's entirely down to Paul, I think, and his support for Corbyn, you know, or the Labour Party. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't know his politics of it, but I was just interested in getting together with Paul, with Robert White, you know. Yeah, gosh. He was retired at that point. He wasn't performing, was it? No. And I'm I'm reaching that kind of, uh, is it time to pack up before people tell me to pack up? No, but working with Steve on the road, I mean, if you can imagine this old bonker of 500 years old working with Steve, <laughs> this young, energetic, it's great. It's, in fact, if I don't feel any different. I still feel as if I'm a 17-year-old in the garage with my mates, you know. It's, it's quite a compliment. In fact, it's more than a compliment that these young people with this great energy and great talent as poets and songwriters and musicians would ask an old plonker to play with, you know. It's, yeah, I do. I've, it kind of moves me in a lot of ways. One thing I remember very clearly talking about old plonkers is uh, Mike Lindup, when he was with Level 42, you know, phoned me up and said, could you do an album with me? So I said, yeah, okay. So went to the studio, Metropole Studios, and met him for the first time. He set up the track and we started to play, and all of a sudden he stopped. And he said, I'm sorry, I've just had to stop. I can't believe I'm working with someone I've been listening to since I was four. <laughs> And I said, I'm used to 16 and 17, but four? <laughs> you listen to me. With, he said, you worked on my mum's album. <laughs> You're kidding. I said, who's your mum? He went, Nadia Katoos. I went, good grief. I mean, the wonderful Nadia Katoos. And this is her son. I mean, that kind of, for no other reason, it stirs up the spiritual feeling about music, you know, mm. how important it is. You know, it is. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And it's an honour to be asked 
to play with someone's mum. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I think that, and what's really interesting is that we should talk about some of the influence that you've had. Pentangle is an important band. It's an important fixture in that whole folk scene and that and very jazz influence, but it means a lot to so many people that to the point that it kind of it kept coming back at one point, there were different kind of incarnations of it. Are you aware at the time of that or is it something that just comes later over time? Recent years, it's become apparent to me that maybe it did means something to a lot of people. But at the start of it, it wasn't a combined effort to shape the music world. It was just like getting together, like kids in the garage again. I was doing a TV show with Alexis Corner. Uh, it was one of those shows where they had guest artists. And one of the guests was John Rimborn. And he came over and we had a cup of tea. We got chatting. And he said, oh, I do a gig on a Sunday at Tottenham Court Road with my mate Bert Jansch. If ever you feel like coming down for a jam or play. And so once again, I said, yeah, I'm there, you know. So that was the start of it. And he introduced Jackie McShee and I introduced Terry Cox, who was part of, you know, my my jazz upbringing. It was quite a, a real thing that we did, you know. It was like natural. And it was quite inventive, I suppose, at the time, although we didn't see it as that. It was, it was really natural. And then after a few months of people queuing around the block in Topical Road to get in, and our first first live gig was at the Festival Hall, supporting Chris Barber's jazz band. <laughs> Brilliant. It became very successful, and a lot of it was due to the, the manager, or the damager at the time, who was an American old-school manager who really believed in us and called us the MJQ of folk. And he really fought and promoted everything. So, yeah, it was natural, is what I'm saying, Dan. It, was, it wasn't meant to be something, you know, clever. But really productive as well. I mean, so many albums in the late 60s, early 70s, you ch- I mean, you churned them out, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we had that energy. We enjoyed it and we think of other songs and, and Bert would write another great song. And, and so, yeah, we wanted to play. It was perfectly, perfectly natural. It was, it, we had that energy and it was great. And we got on as well. We weren't best mates. You're very lucky if you work in a, in a band and you have people who are your best mates. Usually they're great people to be with for whatever time it is that you're working. We did it all right. And then, but after five years, I think it's getting a bit like cabaret, you know, it's time to do something else, you know. So John Martin came and said, here, do you fancy get to you? So that was kind of like a logical move. Yes, please, woof, you know. <laughs> it's important to, to move on, you know. I think Paul said he doesn't like to play the same songs every night and anyone who's heard me play i don't play the same bass part every night ever in fact it's it's a selfish thing i play for myself not to knock myself out but i play because i enjoy playing and i couldn't play note for note the same thing every night because our whole thing is to be composing keeping the energy and sometimes it's good sometimes it isn't so good it should never be awful or bad but sometimes you try new things they work so well that you couldn't write it and you think oh and that's what you live for it's like if you're a golfer you live for the great golf shot one out of 500 you do or the goal the one goal that you I mean we can all remember that goal that we scored (laughs) and it's, it's the same for me with music it's like you're always looking for for that moment and why a lot of us musicians are so miserable is we come off stage or we hear a track or we finish the track and say oh I'd love to do that again because there's always 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 forever room to get it better 
and it will never get better. Pablo Casals, the great cellist, was being interviewed. I think it was his 95th birthday. We're talking about a true virtuoso, not someone who can play a bit, but a true virtuoso. The interviewer said to him, so how do you spend your days then, maestro? So he said, well, I'll get up for breakfast and I'll do a couple of hours practice. And she said, what? Maestro, one of the greatest musicians, and you still practice. And he said, yes. In fact, I've just started to hear some improvement. (laughs) And that's that's exactly as as it is and as it should be. And when Paul says he doesn't have to set the same set list every night, that's to retain that energy, that love of music, that love of composition, of going into areas that may work or may not work. But when they do work, whee! And if they don't work, it's not awful, but it's okay. You mentioned John Martin a second ago, who... Bless him. Yeah. Miss him. Really, really miss him. What has it been now? Like 13 years, I think, isn't it? Something like that since he passed on, hasn't it now? So you work with John from, what was it, about 1970, that Road to Ruin album, and then through loads of his work, including one of the all-time, all-time, all-time greatest albums, Solid Air, right through to his final studio album on the cobbles. And if you haven't heard that, folks, I have to say, it's worth having a listen to, if only for Mavis Staples doing Goodnight Irene at the end of it. But Paul Weller is on that album as well. I don't know if you know this. So he's played on track two, a track called Under My Wing, which he co-wrote. And then you're there, track six, My Creator, with John Martin. So it's a a nice little Weller connection from even earlier, which you may not have been aware of. I don't know that, Dad. Yeah, there you go. Can you send me a link? I'll send you a link. You can have a little listen, yeah. Um, But there was this lovely thing for the 10th anniversary of of John's passing. You recruited all these artists for this uh, Celtic Connections tribute show. There were, I mean, some brilliant people on there like Rory Butler, Eric Bibb, Ross Wilson, Eddie Reader, who's, you know, just fabulous. Lucy Rose, who a lot of Paul Weller fans will know of from um, some work with her and the Royal Festival call gigs and stuff. But Mr. Weller was there as well. So tell tell me about that concert and how you pulled all those people together. For me, it was like crucially important to remember John a, a genuine tribute a lot of things that are put out as tributes by people sometimes the tribute is more about them than it is about the people they're supposed to be remembering I just wanted it to be a true representation of John and his music in fact I opened the concert by saying I'm constantly asked what was John really like all I said was if you really want to know what he was like just listen to his songs Forget all the rhubarb about chucking blokes out of pub windows and all that other stuff. Just listen to the music. I wanted to put a concert together that really, really did speak to the people about John, uh, Grace and Danger. Celtic Connections, they obviously wanted some big names in order to get an audience. I said, I'm not going to get people for the sake of it. You know, it's got to be a genuine thing. I want to get young people like Rory Butler and Lucy and and Ross Wilson and John North and these kind of people that are also lovers of John Martin. And I asked Paul, so he jumped at it. He said, for you, mate, anything. (laughs) Nice. That simple. It was really that simple. And I said, well, that's fantastic. He said, well, you know, whatever. I don't want any money. Give the money to charity and... In fact, everybody just wanted to do the gig. It couldn't have been better than that. And I have to say, it's one of the greatest nights I've ever had. The people were just fantastic. The performances were fantastic. The audience was incredible. And I wore a kilt and I got dressed up, you know. (laughs) Because because John and I had this thing. We said, one day we'll get together wearing the gear. 
as a duo, you know. And I said, well, he's not here, but I am keeping up my side of the bargain, you know. So it was a great night, and Paul came and did three songs, and, yeah, a really special, 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 special night. Paul did a version. I don't know if it's on a record, but of May You Never. Oh, I don't heard that. Yeah, I don't know how I heard that. And then getting to know Paul later, because I didn't know him during the jam and Star Council. <laughs> <laughs> but getting to know him later, he used to listen to like Nick Drake and John Martin and he knew all that stuff was going on. There was a version of, um, and Paul did it that night, Don't Want to Know. Paul did a version of that at the concert in Glasgow that we were talking about. But I'm, I'm sure he took that to Dr. John for the Dr. John album and, and played that with Dr. John as well. And they, and they also did, um, what was it on the um, oh, Sweet Little Mystery as well? Paul and Lucy Rose did a version of that at your gig in Glasgow. Yeah. Well. Really nice, really nice. Um, yeah. was, that, was that recorded at any point or was it just, it well, was for the moment? That, or what? The thing, Dan, now that is the thing, is people wanted to record it at BBC. I said, look, I don't want this to be a commercial enterprise to sell records, you know, because we had a string section. I said, loads of the songs never had string. John never had string sections. So we had a fantastic string section. Greg Lawson did all the arrangements. I said, I don't want it to be ruined by being recorded. I want this to be a night that lives in the memories of people that were there, not for two years later to put the record and go, oh, was that right? What is, oh, I didn't know. You know. So, yes, in our to the long answer to your question is, yes, there is a multi-track that I have. Oh. And maybe when, I'm, when I've moved on and I'm planted, someone will put it out. But that was not the intention. And I'm not being unkind by saying I didn't want it out because a lot of people would love to hear it, you know. Also, to be honest, I haven't listened to all the tracks. So I don't want anyone to think, oh, he's got all of them. And he's been sitting there listening to it and we can't hear <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> um, you could just, Danny, you can just, just share it with me. It's fine. You and I can listen to it and then nobody else can yeah. have it. That's fine. That's all right. But it, it's on mix. We're now talking about maybe getting it mixed and, and later on. You've got to understand, I, would, I wouldn't like anyone to think I was using them, like Paul, using his reputation, his name or Lucy Rose's name, that was not the purpose okay. of it. Yeah. The thing was to highlight just what a fantastic songwriter and bloke John Martin was, bless him, and a man that I really, really miss. I really miss. I miss the bad days as well as the good days. I miss the fights as well, you know. Yeah, I was very, very fortunate, um, and I can smile that I knew him in I really, really do him right to the very end. Yeah. Oh, Danny, well, that's lovely to hear, man. Um, you mentioned about studio and studio recording as being a very personal thing, and that's somebody's kind of safe space and not wanting to give too much away of that. There's a couple of things I do I do have to ask you about. So one is this beautiful Paul Weller album, True Meanings, uh, which came out in 2018, and you're there on, what track would it be? Track 10, Come Along, There You Are, Double Bass. How did that come about? I mean, obviously, Paul asked you, but can you remember recording that? No. Um <laughs> Not a thing. <laughs> um, and it's not because I don't care. It's, uh, I'd have just got, I'd have just gone there. I'd have heard the track before because I say that you shouldn't play anything. You shouldn't record anything that you don't know the song. Mm. You don't know the words to. It's important to be aware and not be Mickey Mouse about it. Not if someone says, and he came in and shut the door. You don't go, boing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that, but I mean, 
you add to the conversation, you become involved in the song, you know, because sometimes you can hear something instrumentally about a song that will tell you the spirit of the song. But I think it's essential to know the words. But I will also say that one of my boys, my stepson, is a fanatic Paul fan, and he left the album, and I haven't heard it. <laughs> but as soon as I get the album, it goes missing. Oh, right. <laughs> well, to be fair, Danny, I think, I, I think you've been on over 500 albums over the years or something ridiculous. In all the stuff that I've done, and someone said there's 30 or 1,000 tracks. Yeah. <laughs> there's not enough hours in, the, in a lifetime to listen to them all, is there? Bad, isn't it? And I'm thinking, because of the pandemic and being the lockdown, and it's led to reminiscing and reflecting and thinking, yeah, I worked with Josh White and Freddie Hubbard and John Hendricks, Joe Williams and Red Rodney, who played with Charlie Parker. I'm on stage playing with Red Rodney. I'm thinking, he worked with Charlie Parker. This is ridiculous. It is mad. It is mad. No, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, you must have so many stories. There has to be a book in you, my friend, surely. There has to be something, an outpouring of of these stories for us to come in the future, surely. Well, I've been asked a a lot of years, but my answer to that is everyone's got a book in them, you know. You've got a book in you. The old lady crossing the road's got a book in you. (laughs) I might not want to read hers, let's be honest. (laughs) But... Oh, I've got some amazing, yeah, I have got some ridiculous stories that are hard to believe, even for me, hard to believe. So at my time, maybe it's time to do the book, you know. Yeah, I reckon so, I reckon so. I heard a little rumour that you'd been down to Black Barn to Paul more recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like to talk about personal stuff. In case stuff that we've done, does it, it decides not to put it on an album. Yes, I was recently there and so-and-so was there and we played. Because then maybe some of the people that are on, on his fan site will think, oh, we got this album coming out, you know. But it was something for Paul where you went down rather than it being your own project, your own solo thing? Was... No, it wasn't my project. Right, okay. No. Interesting. Well, we look forward to that in the future and hearing that in the future. Can I just say, before we go, because the tide is running out, and I'm running out of time as well, and a few health issues, I'm thinking, is it time for me to chuck it in before people say, chuck it in? It's, I would dearly love my last notes, recording-wise, to be with Paul. Even if it's two notes, just I'd love it because I, I love everything that he does, even though I haven't heard Chairman Starkhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I love what he does. He's such an honest guy musically, and I just love for my last bits to be a part of that energy. Because as I said, it's it's not cosmetic. It's live You go in the studio and you're given the freedom to express yourself within his poetry. And that's a great compliment, you know. I've heard, I mean, you must have visited Lord knows how many studios over the years, hundreds of studios probably over the years. I hear a lot of people talking about how special Black Barn is as a studio and what a magical place it is. Well, it is. It really is. Especially, well, now people have got studios in their lofts. Yeah, 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 true. It's the more magical than the garden with, office I'm building, yeah. <laughs> a real living, breathing studio. It is. It's fantastic. And a decent cup of tea and a curry. <laughs> oh, you've been to the Ripley Curry Garden, have you? <laughs> well, and they, they also do deliveries. Because what I miss nowadays, when I take about cosmetic, is that this business about recording in your dining room and sending in the track to... America or Austria or somewhere. I said, whatever happened to being in a room together, making music and singing and having a cup of tea 
And that is what the black barn is about. That's why the quality of music and the quality that comes out of there is so fantastic because it's real. It's people sitting in the same room, breathing the same oxygen and making this beautiful music together, led by none other than Paul, you know, who doesn't sit there wagging, waving his arms about, but goes, oh, how about if, what if, it's like being back in the garage again, you know. <laughs> here, what if we're back, here, that'd be nice. Let's, here, what, here, what about real music making? And long, long may it continue. Wow, Danny, I have to say, this has been this has been a real treat to spend time with you. Thank you so much for your time. And let's hope those final notes don't come too soon, my friend. Um, I have two final questions for you before you go. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be, <laughs> I mean, we know it's not going to be these folks, but it can be the jam or the style council, unlikely, or solo. What are you going to pick? No, well, I will say that the whole Paul Weller is one track, his whole recording. No, it's not a cop-out. It's... There, there, <laughs> There's a lot of single tracks I could pick out and be really clever, knowing that this question may come up. I go, oh, I'll find this song. I go rummaging through and listen. But the whole thing, it's like John Martin, they say, what is your fact? I go, it's one album. The whole thing is one album, and that's it. I certainly can't cheapen it by saying, oh, I like that, if I don't really believe that. You know what I'm saying? I love it. So it's a it's a forty five year long album at the moment, right? Yeah, long may it continue, right? That's my favourite answer so far to that question. I think nobody else can copy that, by the way. In case you're thinking about that future guess, <laughs> yeah. uh, Danny, uh, this has been so lovely. Like I say, uh, so final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to talk to amazing people like yourself who've had these great careers. And these connections with Paul Weller as well that kind of uh, weave through these stories. But really, I've got to be honest with you. It's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. My one big regret from giving up my radio broadcasting career. If it happens, if I get to interview Paul, what should I ask him? Can I do my last bit of recording with him? (laughs) (laughs) On your behalf. Does he not know this? Does he not know this is a question? No, he does know it, actually. What do you think I should talk to him about? Is there a topic of conversation you think he'd appreciate? It would be boxers, probably. Oh, really? Be about boxing, yeah. Because his dad, yeah, he was an ABA, so was I. I So we've got that in common. I was a useful light welterweight. You didn't meet each other in the ring then, you and John? No, no. (laughs) Thank goodness. <laughs> what is your record on the boxing? Are you, are you undefeated still or what? I lost my first fight and I cried and cried and cried and cried. And I, I said, right, I'm never, ever going to lose another fight. And I never did. And I got called up into, I could did my national service, got shipped out to Malaya. I used to fight for the regiment box. And I never, ever got beaten. I refused to get beaten. <laughs> I feel like that could be your life story, man. <laughs> I've never been beaten. Hey, this has been so lovely, Danny. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. If I, if I do a book, it's going to be called Danicdotes. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> well, thanks for asking me, Dan. I'm shocked and amazed, but I'm very happy to have met you. Well, there you go. Another very, very special episode. Danny Thompson, once again, thanks for joining me. You can find out more details and check out our Danny Thompson playlist on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. A whole heap of amazing work, a beautiful three hours you'll spend listening to music that features Danny. Have a listen paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, you can buy me a virtual coffee or get some of our new exclusive official merchandise all on the website. Just check out the store.
Thanks for listening. Share a link to the podcast on your social media channels. It does help to spread the word. And you can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.